I want to start out with just how incredibly humbled I am for this opportunity to be able to bring the Word of God to you all this morning. I want to thank Pastor Jacob and the rest of the elders for entrusting me with this pulpit. It's evident, if you've been attending here for any period of time, that they don't take lightly the Word of God. And it's only wise and biblical that any man who stands up here handles the Word with the same respect, honor, devotion that it deserves and that we see carried out here every Sunday morning. So the pressure's on. This morning, we're continuing on in our summer series through the Psalms. And today we get to explore Psalm 19. I finally got to say that. I've, it's been three months since he told me this, and I've just been a caged animal. So I'm ready to go. I was honestly overjoyed for the reality of being able to, uh, for the ability to preach it all, let alone this psalm. You may have heard it said that Psalm 19 is Psalm 119 in miniature. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, and the main emphasis of that psalm is the Word of God, much like we see in a portion of Psalm 19 today. So my prayer for us today is that this psalm would encourage us, and the Holy Spirit would give us a deep, rich, edifying understanding of the glory of God, not just in creation, but also through His Word. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we come to you a needy people, a people hungry for your word, desiring to know you more fully. Lord, as we go through the text today, I I couldn't help but notice that the word isn't just describing a law or precepts or testimony. It's describing an individual. You say in your word in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So what David is talking about from 7 through 14, discussing the word, is he's actually highlighting the significance of an individual, the character of an individual. Lord, that is, what, that is where this power comes from, is from Jesus. The, what makes this word so precious is that it is about Jesus, Lord. So I just pray for wisdom and discernment, and for guidance, and I pray for the hearts of everyone in here, Lord, that we would all be encouraged and edified through your word. Lord, I have nothing to offer these people apart from your word. Lord, so please enable me to preach it clearly and enable their hearts to receive it and not only just hear it, but do it. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would invite you all to open your Bibles to Psalm 19. And we'll begin our look at the glories of this wonderful psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It was a wonderful time for me preparing this particular message over the last couple of weeks. I just got back from Georgia last week with my family where we spent a week on the beautiful beaches and beholding the beauty and the power that is the ocean. And also, for those who are into astronomy or watch any news at all, we got to view the new images from the James Webb Space Telescope. And do you know what came to mind immediately upon viewing those images, especially since Psalm 19 has been at the front and center of my mind for the last three months? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The sheer vastness of our universe is truly incredible. But what's even more incredible is the fact that the universe is just a microcosm compared to the one who created it. And it's easy to think of how meaningless and minuscule we are in the grand scheme of the cosmos. But just remember, the one who spoke that into existence also came to this very planet and gave himself up willingly and died for sinners. So just remember that if anyone in here is struggling with the lie of being insignificant. And not only did he give us the heavens to reveal himself, but he also gave us a book. And as we'll expound on this morning, it is this book that reveals everything we need to live a God-honoring life. The Bible touches on every aspect we will ever encounter in this life, whether it's regarding marriage, parenting, grandparenting, dating, sex, finances, discipleship, preaching, evangelism, prayer, and divorce. The list goes on and on, and the Bible speaks to all of these topics and many more. So my objective this morning is to walk us through Psalm 19 verse by verse, and by the grace of God we would see more clearly that it is Scripture alone that is perfect for reviving the soul. It is Scripture alone that is sure for making wise the simple. It is Scripture alone that is right for rejoicing the heart. It is scripture alone that is pure for enlightening the eyes. It is scripture alone that is true and righteous altogether. And it is scripture alone that should be our desire over gold, material possessions, or fresh baked bread right out of the oven. The message of Psalm 19 is that the glory of God displayed in the heavens points us to the grace of God displayed in the Bible. It can be broken up a few different ways, but for today, we're going to break it up into three parts. The first part would be verses 1 through 6, where God reveals himself through creation, something we would call general revelation in the sense that it is general to everyone. When we look around, we see the intricacies of our created world. It is evident that there is a creator. When you look at a beautiful painting, you can't always see the artist but you know a great artist exists because of the beauty of the painting that you're beholding. Consider what the Apostle Paul says regarding this general revelation in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. The second part would be verses 7 through 11 where David writes what the word of God is and what it does. This is what we would call special revelation. It is how God has chosen to reveal himself. And the third part would be verses 12 through 14. What should the proper response be to the first two points made here? What should the response be to general revelation as well as special revelation? So starting with verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Going back to our artist analogy regarding the beautiful painting by an artist we know exists but cannot see, here we have David identifying that great artist and highlighting the great power of this creator for the glories we perceive in nature. Every day, people walk outside into the largest IMAX theater ever created and give no gasps of air, no sense of wonder, and certainly no praise to the one who the Bible says in Psalm 8.3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I love that verse. Notice how it says fingers. The depths of space and the size of the planets and the stars and the power of the sun, and the Bible says it's the work of his fingers. I think of a grandma knitting something together. She uses those little sticks and some yarn, and over time, her creation slowly starts to come together. Now, while that takes some skill, it's relatively light work. Our fingers are capable of light work, but God created the entire cosmos with just his fingers. The text is implying the sheer power of God. And his precision is incredible. Psalm 104.5 says he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. When we think about where the planet is placed in our atmosphere and how perfectly aligned we are with, with the moon and the sun and everything and how we can have life, we can have water, we can have oxygen, we can have all these things, it's truly the work of an intelligent creator. Verse 2 Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. We already covered the who, which is God, and the what, which is the work of his hands. Now we're getting to the when. When do the heavens declare the glory of God? Nine to five, noon to four? No. From day to day and night to night. Here we see constant communication just through general revelation of the glory of God. Every day bursts out speech. Day to day and night to night. Where one day ends, the night takes over. And where the night ends, the day takes over. It's an endless cycle of silent, yet thunderous proclamations to the glory of God. Verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Where can you go to hide from this incredible display of a magnificent creator? The answer is nowhere. There is nowhere you can go and not see the signs that there is a creator. Language and culture are no barrier. The heavens, the voice of the heavens reaches the farthest corner of the globe. A man in Australia looks up and sees the sun or moon, and a woman in Canada looks up to see the same sun and moon. Men and women in every age and every place have seen God's glory in the heavens. Verses 4 and 5, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Now the first part of verse 4 is basically reiterating verse 3. It's almost like David was like, hey, catch this now. Listen to me again. You can't escape this handiwork. 
If you've taken one breath in this life, you've experienced the glory of God in creation. And the last part of verse 4 is alluding to the fact that God has made a dwelling place for the Son in heaven. Verse 5 now needs the second part of verse 4 to truly grasp what's being said. I love this imagery. He says, In them he has set a tent for the Son, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Isn't that picture just awesome? What David is essentially doing here is portraying the son as a man and that this son is so desperate to show the glory of God that it bursts through a chamber door on his wedding day to get to his beloved bride. For those in here who are married or have ever been to a wedding and we get to the point where everyone stands up and turns around to behold the bride walking down the aisle, it's a wonderful sight. But what's equally as wonderful is when you hit that girl, when you, when you are in that, excuse me, Equally as wonderful is when you are that groom, that beautiful bride is walking towards. The joy and excitement you had when you knew you were going to spend the rest of your life with her. A woman who has probably by this point seen you sin countless times and still wants to marry you. The second picture we get from verse 5 is the one of a strong, mighty man. Think of this as more of an Olympic athlete. Someone who has a singular focus and is ready for his race. He doesn't approach the starting line with this exasperated depression. The sun hits that horizon with joy. 170,000 terawatts, to be exact. To put that into perspective, on average, humans consume roughly 23,000 terawatts of energy per year. Just imagine that. 173,000 terawatts of energy at any given moment throughout the day, and we use 23,000 terawatts yearly. And the same God who created that son with that power wrote this book. Verse 6, its rising is from the heavens, is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun is like this big, large, natural hymnal that, is continu- that continually shines on this whole earth, proclaiming the glory of God. There may be places on this planet that never see the light of day, but that's not what this verse is talking about. There is nowhere anyone can go to hide from the sun's heat. And the same is true of God. Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God's general revelation of himself is visible everywhere, whether on earth or in the galaxy. It all points to him. Now, while the heavens beautifully declare God's glory and power, We cannot fully understand who he is, especially salvifically, without the clarity of the written word of Scripture. And it's here where the psalm takes a turn from God's world to God's word. God's name was only mentioned once in the first half of the psalm. David used the general name of God, El, in verse 1. But in the second half, David uses God's name, Yahweh, seven times, six times in verses 7 through 9, And once more in verse 14. The reason for this, I believe, is because Yahweh is the personal, intimate, covenant name of God. So David is now using the true name of God to be associated with the law. This is Yahweh of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the deliverer, the redeemer, the savior. He's illustrating uniqueness, his self-existence, and his self-sufficiency. So verse 7 is where the focus shifts. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
it was here when I started to have a little bit of a panic attack when I was preparing for this because time just doesn't allow to say everything that the word is and that it isn't. I texted Jacob, I think three or four times, how much time do I have on Sunday? His answer never changed, unfortunately. But in the following verses, we see, that, we see what God's word is and what it does. David calls it perfect. James calls it the perfect law. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And, in, and on his law, he meditates day and night. When hearts are changed by the grace of God, sinful human beings will have their affections redirected towards God and everything that he says. His commandments won't be a burden for the believer, but a joyous freedom. 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When we're talking about perfection, it's a term that's thrown out so loosely these days. It's easy to really start to have it diminish the significance of what it truly means. Like, that brisket was perfect. That football throw was perfect. That birthday cake was perfect. That bacon was cooked perfectly. To say that the law of the Lord is perfect is really to solidify that it lacks nothing. It's whole, complete, flawless, blameless. There's no contradictions and there's no conflicting perspectives within it. So in light of that reality, what does it do? The next part of the verse says, reviving the soul. The perfect law of the Lord revives the soul. Now the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. And it's referring to our inner being, our very real selves, the very nature of who you are intrinsically and spiritually. This is a wonderful reminder for us today and every day. We hold in our hands the very thing that can bring sinners to repentance through faith in Christ. This word does not need to be mixed with worldly, flashy rock songs, no A-list celebrity endorsements, and certainly no politician. Often today, I feel like Christians rely too much on powerful, influential people for promoting the power of God. We find ourselves defeated and discouraged when someone we thought was a faithful advocate for Christ walks back statements or totally abandon the faith. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today that this Bible is all you need. The Bible does not need a famous endorsement or political affirmation. It is perfect at reviving, restoring, refreshing, and converting the soul. Moving on to the second part of verse 7, it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Here we have another synonym for the law of God. Testimony. When we think of testimony, what do you usually think of? Testimony in a court case, right? And that is what testimony, and that, and what is testimony in a court case, what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a truthful recollection of events that happened. That's what David is saying here. The Bible is sure testimony. It's trustworthy. It's unquestionably sure regarding events that happened. God is not lying about who he is, and the biblical authors are not bearing false witness about him. It is this testimony that gives Paul the, the, the ability in Romans 1.16 where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation to all who believe. It's this testimony that gives him that ability to say, I'm not ashamed. I'll preach it anywhere. It's the power of God that, that for salvation. So having this sure testimony makes wise the simple. You will have the evidence regarding this court case, if you will, 
and it will, it will, and it will make a proper verdict. Sorry, I get too excited. I got to follow this or I, I get distracted. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Dictionary.com defines precepts as a commandment or direction given as a rule of action or conduct. For me, it was helpful to view precepts as principles. We all have principles that we live by, things that are fundamental to how we conduct ourselves. We know someone, you may know someone who you would consider a good person with good principles, but it is only God's precepts that have the authority to claim being right. Look at the decay we live in every day in a fallen world that rejects God's precepts. Look at the clarity we have as Christians when we recognize God's precepts over worldly ones. For example, I can define what a man and a woman is. I can illustrate what a biblical marriage is. I can say to a woman at the abortion mill that the baby she's carrying is in fact a baby made in the image of God and not just a clump of cells and has significant value as does the mother carrying the child. Going back to the previous verse, making wise the simple, this is just simple, basic truths. And what do these precepts bring according to this verse? Joy. When we hold these precepts as the only source of truth, that is when our hearts will be filled with joy. Consider what Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Or look at what John says in 1 John 1, 4, and that we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Are you lacking joy in your life? Here's the guide to follow to experience true joy. I think of Jesus in Luke 24 when he was with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's walking along and they didn't know who he was. Finally, he revealed himself and he opened up the scriptures to them of the, all the things concerning himself. And then if you go on, I believe it's in verse 32, he says something along the lines of, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? It is the scripture that brings joy. It creates this passionate joy of knowing who this God is. Moving on to the second part of the verse, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word is free from contamination. It is never immoral, and it is never inappropriate. It is pure. God's word is so pure that as a result of it, eyes are enlightened, and that enables us to see not only where we should go, but how we should get there. People aren't just saved and then thrown into the world with no direction. They're given the pure word of life seen through enlightened eyes. Real quick, the second question in the Westminster Larger Catechism is how does, how does it appear that there is a God? And the answer, the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But it is his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. Based on the answer to that question is what clarifies to me the purity of the word of God. We may hear people say, well, how can you be sure that the Bible is actually the word of God? How do you know it hasn't been corrupted over time by sinful men who have made slight alterations to it? And my conviction regarding the pure word of God is the mere fact that the word is still saving people around the globe today. It is still converting souls, it still rejoices the heart, and it still enlightens the eyes. 
it is still encouraging Christians across this world that are being persecuted, that refuse to denounce their faith in Christ. And that's because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is encouraging them in that time. If it was altered or not sufficient, there would be nothing to encourage these saints to continue to want to go out and share this good news with unreached people groups and withstand the persecution that they are. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Notice how David breaks the pattern of articulating God's word and what it does, but yet there's still this beautiful symmetry captured here. In verse 9, David shifts to focus on the relationship between God and his people. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word clean often has the sense of being ritually pure. The fear of the Lord purifies God's people. This lasting blessing endures forever, qualifying us to be in the presence of in his presence for eternity. This word has such power that it searches to the very core of our being, which is this verse, can cause fear. But that fear is a good thing when paired with the graciousness of God through Christ. David returns to this pattern in his final statement. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Doesn't this verse just really sum up the totality of Scripture? It really doesn't get any more simple and simultaneously can't be more profound. God's word is true. It's as simple as that. Every last word. And not only is it true, but it's righteous in the sense that we can have confidence that God will not and cannot render an unjust decision. He will never fail to execute justice. He will never be tempted by anything corrupt because it's completely contrary to who he is. Scripture is sufficient. And it is final. Psalm 119 can help us articulate this a little further in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 128, therefore I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Verse 137 and 38, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimony in righteousness and in all faithfulness. 142, your righteousness is forever and your law is true. But you, are, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And one of my favorites, also John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I could keep going, but time just doesn't allow. Moving on to verse 10, David has wrapped up his pattern regarding God's word, what it is, and what it does. Now, based on what was revealed in verses 7 through 9, has led David to say what could only be uttered by someone who has been changed by the word of God. He says regarding Scripture, more to be desired are they, that is Scripture, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do we desire God's word more than we desire an abundant bank account? Do we desire God's word over the indulgence of our favorite foods? You see, David knows that gold can't revive the soul, can't give wisdom, and it can't lighten the eyes the way Scripture can. And the reason he knows that is because he has experienced God not just in the world, but also in the Word. God's Word is the greatest treasure for those who love him. By knowing the Word of God, it transforms our desires for things that essentially don't matter to things that have ultimate value. I mean, think about it. 
What would you trade the word of God for when trials come, when a spouse dies, when you lose a kid, when you get into an accident? Where are you going to go if you don't have this? Now, I'm not saying that gold or money or sensory pleasures such as food are a bad thing. But when we elevate those things over knowing and experiencing God, we miss out on joy. If you only remember one thing this morning, please let it be this, that the Bible is better. It is better than fancy cars, than nice clothes, a big bank account, or anything else that you can think of. Those things can never satisfy your soul the way Scripture does. As Josh alluded to earlier, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Verse 11 and 12. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. In verse 11, the Bible warns of what happens to those who disobey the word and tells of great reward for those who desire and love the word. Now, this is, this is worth pointing out, the Christological significance of this psalm, just the Christ-centeredness of it. There is no reward apart from Christ's sacrifice. If Christ didn't fulfill the law's demands and live a perfect life and willingly die on behalf of sinners, we could have no confidence of any reward apart from the works of Christ. And in verse 12, here we see David proclaim his need for the gospel. It was this verse that really brought together the harmony of this psalm. Remember in verses 1 through 6, we saw David extolling God for his creation. And in verses 7 through 11, we saw him extolling God for his word. I think, Dave, I think verse 6 was specifically on David's mind here. Regarding the sun, there is nothing hidden from its heat. As David meditated upon the heat of the sun and the light of God's perfect law, he conceded that he was the problem and God's grace was the only solution. Is that not what the gospel does? It illustrates the magnificence of God, the ugliness of our sin, and it reveals to us our great dilemma that we can't fix on our own. So here David essentially cries out, I'm so deceitfully wicked compared to you, Yahweh. How could I possibly discern all the errors my heart possesses? And he rightfully turns to God for forgiveness. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. The word is having the same effect on him that the son does on creation by revealing its true self, his true self. Search my heart, God, and reveal to me anything that is contrary to my character, or to your character, excuse me. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's exactly what's happening to David here. That word is having such an effect on him. It's searching him out and it's rooting out all those things that are just contrary to God's character. To the same way the sun, not only the sun, there's dark places on this earth, but nothing is void of the, the heat of the sun no matter where you go. The word has the same effect on every individual. Verse 13 ties right in with verse 12. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Presumptuous, the definition is failing to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. So we saw hidden sins in verse 12, and now we're dealing with presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are the ones done out of arrogance. 
with a sense of deliberation. Overstepping the known boundaries, if you will. Anyone in here with kids might know what that's like. Kids know what they should and shouldn't do, but sometimes they just want to toe that line of acceptable behavior. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not only kids who test that line, but we adults do at times as well. I'm guilty. We're lying to ourselves if we can say we do what's right 100% of the time. So I just ask that you guys pray, and myself included, pray for God to reveal those hidden sins because they can lead to presumptuous sins. Sins that can quickly make us numb to the reality of its offense, which is why this verse highlights the fact that these sins can start to take dominion over you. David was asking for God's loving protection from this happening. How do we prevent these presumptuous sins from taking dominion over our lives? Psalm 1911 gives us the A answer. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the Bible reveals God's character. And we cannot read this psalm as if we don't have the benefit of the New Testament. We know that what David is essentially writing about with such high regard is not just the Bible, but the one who the Bible tells of. We're all familiar with John 1, 1, as I cited earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This psalm finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when David says in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart, that is not just these words in the greatest book ever written, but it is the Son of God himself. So what do you look to when sin starts to creep into your life? You look to Jesus. You look to your mediator, the founder and perfecter of your faith. The word is also better than any individual experience. Often today, people want proof. They want experiences, but that is nonsense when we have this book. Peter was there during the transfiguration. It says in Matthew 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. They saw Jesus' divine glory, the glory he had before he became a man. And Peter says of that experience in 2 Peter 1, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You see, Peter was there for what would have been an absolutely incredible experience, but yet he says that the word of God is more fully confirmed than his individual experience. This book lacks nothing. It's incredible. And that brings us to the final verse, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is such a beautiful way to end this psalm. I believe David has in mind here the sacrificial system. The point of a sacrifice is to bring the one presenting it into a right relationship with God. Therefore, it is both the sacrifice and the sacrificer who need to be acceptable. David's prayer asks for just that. The words of his mouth being the sacrifice and the meditation of his heart being a reflection of the one offering the sacrifice. The word and creation have had such effect on him that he wants to just offer up a sacrifice to God. He has to praise God. It's overwhelmed to the point where he can't help it. He needs to praise him. But he's also asking it that be acceptable. Search me out, 
Reveal to me the hidden sins in my life. Weed out the presumptuous sins. Let this praise be acceptable to you, God. I close with this. At the end of Psalm 19, David offers up a sacrifice of acceptable words and meditations. We often try to offer up sacrifices of good works, trying even harder to earn God's favor. But we must no longer offer up such sacrifice, for the ultimate sacrifice has paid the price. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus, the Son of God, died fulfilling the law and the promises of his coming. We can now receive his grace and sing Psalm 19 in celebration of his perfection and redemption. Pray with me. Father, we thank and praise you for your word, Lord. We thank you for its purity, its truthfulness. We thank you for the testimony, Lord. We thank you for the boldness that we see laid out by the apostles in Scripture. Lord, I pray that we be a people when we go out and we share this good news, we share this law with sinners to highlight their need for a Savior, Lord. I pray that we would do it with boldness, standing firm, knowing that this word is complete, it is true, and it is the only thing that convert, that can convert sinners. Lord, there is no other method, there is no other book, there is nothing else apart from your word that we need. Lord, so I just pray that everyone in here would see scripture as sweet honey on their lips, that they just gotta, they gotta share it, they gotta tell people about it. Lord, and myself included, Lord, give us a boldness to proclaim this great God. Lord, and let the meditation of our heart be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, our savior. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.